Welcome to the Petro Nerds Podcast with your hosts, Trisha Curtis, CEO of Petro Nerds. This show combines upstream and midstream expertise in a Rocky Mountain showdown. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Petronas Podcast. This is episode 100 of the Petronas Podcast. My name is Trisha Curtis. I am your host, and I am the CEO of Petronas. I am absolutely pumped about this episode today. I am stoked to be at episode 100 of the Petronas Podcast, and I am delighted to wish you all a happy new year. Um, today is January 17, 2024. We are going to introduce this podcast as I introduce all the other ones, um, and we're also going to front load this thinking about with with all the thoughts sort of around the new year and what is happening with oil prices and the economy. But this podcast episode and why it is so great is because uh, in addition to this front loading and talking about the macro economy and where oil prices are at, what's going on in the world um, and the Fed and, and oil prices, we're going to talk about, we're going to do the discussion that we had at the Denver Earth Resources Library, which I am on the board. This was the at their Prospect Expo, Expo when I had, um, I advertised this on some some previous LinkedIn posts that you might have seen, but we did a, a roundtable discussion or a panel discussion at the Denver Resources Library with a really, really star-studded lineup. So I was very appreciative um, that when the Denver Resources Library said they were putting on this prospect expo and I said, hey, let's do a panel discussion. It was awesome that Daniel Siever uh, with Fundair Resources, he agreed to um, actually moderate the panel. Chris Atherton uh, flew in with EnergyNet and was on the panel. And uh, my uh, Andrew Haney, a good friend and colleague uh, with Nickelroad Operating, um, was also on the panel. So between the the four of us, it was a really, really good dialogue. Um, I think you guys are going to be blown away. Um, I was just extremely appreciative of everyone in the audience as well that came to the Prospect Expo. Uh, the room was packed when everyone was listening to this and people were really dialed in and they asked fantastic questions, whether it was on the micro level related to the Rockies or on the macro level related to the economy and oil prices and the regulatory environment. So with that being said, um, this is episode 100 and uh, we are going to front load this with uh, the typical timestamp. It is January 17, 2024. We are looking at WTI at 72.84. We're looking at Brent under 79. We're looking at 78.14. Um, we are looking at Henry Hub at $2.87. We're seeing some real pressure on Dutch TTF um, at 9.48. And we're seeing the 10-year yield, which has really come up in the last couple of days, um, at, which we'll talk about at 4.106. That has correlated with an uptick in the 30-year mortgage as well. It, again, if you look on TV, it's 688, 688. So if you're if you're trying to get a mortgage today, you're looking around something around seven percent. I think well, the the U.S. average is well over seven percent. Um, so there's a lot that goes with that. We just had, um, I mean, we're halfway through the first month of of the year. And what we saw in the back half of last year, which is what you're going to hear in forthcoming podcasts where I talk about this quite a bit, um, but really what's marking 2024 and what to think about, what are the biggest themes to think about, is the, um, is the war, the escalating war within the Middle East, is the Houthi attacks um, in the Red Sea, um, what the consequences of that are, um, really what are oil prices, why are they as low as they are, um, despite all this geopolitical volatility that we're seeing um, how bad is the Chinese economy? What's going on with China? And um, Fed and inflation and interest rates. Um, that's one of the biggest themes in the last couple of days. And then lastly is that this is an election year, not just in the U.S., but around the world. We're seeing elections everywhere. Um, so it means a lot that um, what happens in the U.S. and what that means going forward. And we're also seeing incredibly low approval ratings for the Biden administration, uh, particularly with regards. And the, I mean, the reason for that largely is because of the economy. So 
with all that being said, oil prices at 72.84 or yeah, 72.84 for so we're under 73 bucks. We've been hanging around this level. We really saw extremely thin trading volume um at, at the end of this year when uh, at the end of 2023, around Christmas time, you had very, very thin trading volume. And that was really when, um, I mean, you saw prices actually go down to $69 a barrel. And that was despite the ramp up in these attacks on commercial shipping vessels within the Red Sea. So the Red Sea is a major is a major transit route where you have the Suez Canal, which connects to um, Egypt, and then it gets you into the Mediterranean Sea to where then you can access Europe. So a lot of what Europe is getting is coming through the Suez Canal. And now, Ships are basically not, if you are a UK ship or you are a US ship, you're actually not getting insured right now because um, the US and the UK have begun airstrikes as of just basically several days ago on um, these Houthi rebels. Now, the Houthis are an Iranian-backed group, just like Hezbollah, just like Hamas. Um, they are in, you've probably heard of them before, because if you look at a map of Saudi Arabia and you look at the country that's just touching and south of Saudi Arabia, also part of this um Red Sea, when you look at the Bob El Mandeb Strait, which is a, ch a choke point right at the bottom there. Um, so Suez Canal's at the top, Red Sea in the middle, and that that choke point, ball, that, that strait right there at the bottom, that's connected with Yemen. The Yemen has had a war with uh, Saudi Arabia for several years. This is costing, um, this is costing uh, Mohammed bin Salman and Saudi Arabia billions of dollars each month for this, this war that they're fighting in Yemen. Um, Mohammed bin Salman was a big proponent of that. They've since sort of tried to de-escalate that. That's why you're why you are not seeing um, the Saudis are are have basically not at least not said they are part of this uh, these airstrikes and these attacks um, against the Houthis, but that's where the Houthis are at, right? They're in Yemen, and so they are attacking with pretty pretty cheap um, and unsophisticated means. They're using drones and other means to attack these ships um, and missiles as well. And we so now we're doing airstrikes and we're doing um, trying to intercept these, but it hasn't really worked to restore confidence in terms of getting people to ship um, within the sea. The fact that you can't get insurance if you're a U.S. or a U.K. vessel, that's going to be a problem. You We've seen Shell, we've seen Maersk, we've seen a lot of folks basically say we're, they're not shipping. You're now seeing LNG trade, which is about five um, about five BCF a day is moving through the Red Sea and through the up through the Suez Canal. So that is going to impact LNG prices. Now, more broadly, the fact that, that we're not seeing this, the fact that we have an escalating situation where Iran is looking to actually escalate this this war outside of the Israel-Hamas, um, that focal point, which is still very much ongoing, and we still see that fighting continue, the fact that Iran is looking to escalate this the fact that we are not actually seeing oil prices um, go up in tandem is very interesting. And that's, you have a few themes taking place. And that is that you really have those thin trading volumes. You probably have traders not truly understanding the dynamics of the geopolitical ramifications of what's going on, really not appreciating, um, you know, how significant these, these players are and really not appreciating that we have two hot wars and, and one that's uh, one that's, looking to get exacerbated further, as well as you have a lot of supply in the market. Um, so this comes to the supply story. This comes to the U.S. producing over 13 million barrels per day. So the U.S. has now for two consecutive months produced 13.3 million barrels per day. Um, that is an all-time record high for U.S. output, but that's an all-time global high for any country ever as well. So that is extremely meaningful in the context of global output. Also at a time when we have all this ample spare capacity within the Middle East where we have spare capacity now out of uh, Saudi Arabia, we have spare capacity um, out of at the United Arab Emirates, where we've had, you know, OPEC pull back on production to try to keep prices up. Now, again, why are the, why did they do that in the first place? I've talked about this at length. I have not been as nearly as bullish on 
the macro fundamentals from the demand side, um, as a lot of folks were. I certainly didn't buy into, you know, the ramp up to $94 oil at the end of September and seeing this, you know, this $20, that, 20 bucks that we've come off since then. But that that all that all being said and what that means is that you have you have all the spare capacity you have us producing a ton of crude oil so you have to absorb it and the fact that we have these geopolitical um tensions within within the global economy and we're not seeing oil prices higher means that um yes we have supply but it also means that demand doesn't look that great and so we know that within the uk um inflation ha- we just saw an inflation read up we saw an inflation read up for the us as well for december we know that germany isn't going into recession we know that the Europe has had long into recession um, and their figures, the fact that they've suffered such high inflation for so long, they're really feeling it. And we are seeing actual demand, oil demand come down within Europe, within Germany specifically. So, you know, even if that's a few hundred thousand barrels a day, that can really start adding up. And it means that demand growth isn't coming from there. Um, and usually as I, as I try to, you know, emphasize a lot throughout this podcast and with clients is it's demand growth and healthiness in demand growth or healthiness just in demand that really drives oil prices. So, but it's not just Europe, it's really about China. Um, and so when you make the point about China, you're hearing probably, you're hearing a lot more about China right now on the stock market. And that is because we just had the Taiwanese elections and Taiwan um, elected the current party, the DPP, um, the Democratic People's Party, which is not what uh, Beijing or China wanted because that that party is more, um, they're not necessarily saying they're going to become an independent country and they're going to say that they're, you know, and cause a war tomorrow, but they are definitely more vocal. They're definitely closer to the U.S. Um, and they are definitely, they're not the other two parties, which China wanted more. So it's, it's going to increase tensions um, over time. And it's certainly not something that Beijing wanted to see. So you're hearing about it from hearing about China there. You're also seeing a slug of data that came out last night on China now, this is in addition to, you know, every data point that we see. But last night, we actually saw China come out in the last couple of days. They re, they reissued their youth unemployment um, unemployment figure that they had actually um, they had gotten rid of that figure in, which is kind of hilarious because none of these figures are real. We know that they're all cooked. But the fact that when they have to get rid of one, that is really telling. It means that it's not it's really not good. So they changed this figure. They changed how they like how they get to this number. And they came out with a youth unemployment figure when they issued it last time. It was over 21 percent in July in mid at the midpoint in July of, of 2023. Now they've come out with it and it's it's down all the way down to 14 point something. Now, 14 point something is nothing to be really proud about. That's a really high unemployment figure, youth unemployment figure. That's for ages 16 to 24 year olds that are not actually in um, the, the, so they're, they're not in school. So they've, I wouldn't believe the figure in and of itself. You also saw a ton of other data, which basically the, they were at Davos and the, um, one of their economic individuals, Chinese economic individuals said that the um, GDP rate for China for um, 2023 was 5.2%, um, which is just remarkable because there's no way that, you know, they projected it to be 5.3%. They it came in at 5.2%. There's no way. They just don't have a healthy enough economy to support that. And this is where it really gets into oil demand. And you've had OPEC and IEA consistently over the course of 2023 saying that China was leading demand growth at 17 million barrels per day. Now, certainly China's apparent oil demand looks like it was 17 million barrels a day, meaning that they imported a lot of crude oil. Um, and so that's really where we get that figure is from imports. So if 
it's imports and it's not actually being used. Those are two different stories. And you just can't, um, you can't settle the score with the bad Chinese economic data and 17 million barrels a day demand or 2 million barrels a day demand growth from 2022 when you had full lockdowns. Um, and that's because the housing data, so they basically put up retail sales and they put up all the data points yesterday and they were supposedly pretty good. Now, that doesn't make sense when the Hang Seng and all the stock market indices are just plummeting, as well as real estate. And real estate was down because housing prices were down another month. And this is the worst we've seen basically since 2007. We haven't seen this um, this bad of a situation in 15 years. So, And we know that it's always worse than they say it is. So it's really a, a palpable, you know, tangible situation within China from the economic situation. And um, the reason you hear so many people saying, you know, yeah, you don't just double down and because Chinese stocks are so cheap. The reason you can't do that, you never really could do that. But the fact that the Chinese people don't even do that and the fact that they've invested so heavily in their um, in property, it's because the, the, the stock market side really isn't real. Um, and something really, there's a really great report that came out by the congressional, uh, by the bipartisan um, it's the China Bipartisan Congressional Group, and they they issued this uh, this incredible Chinese security paper that's several hundred pages long, but it's very dense, it's very thorough, um, and it's a really really good overview for all these topics. And one of the things that they mentioned was all the um, the fact that every all the companies within China, even if they are private or public, it really doesn't matter, or even if they're government owned or not government owned, it doesn't matter because it. Um, the government basically has a share in all of these companies. And whether that share is one share or 20 or 100%, it doesn't matter because it means that they're beholden to the government. So um, I, I think that there's just a point where um, between all the the security laws that are being in place um, and the, the espionage laws as well, is that you are really seeing a reluctance of um, foreigners and especially foreign business leaders to go to China. Now, Jamie Dimon made, um, along with... Uh, you know, Fed officials uh, in the last two days, we saw um, Wallard, a Fed official who's normally pretty dovish, actually come out and say that we're going to see interest rates. Um, we probably will see interest rates higher for longer. He didn't say that exactly. He just said that because of the health of the economy, we we should not expect to see uh, the Fed cut interest rates as aggressively as they have in previous cycles. So that really has, we've seen that 10-year-old go up. And because that 10-year-old has gone up, we've seen a whole repricing of the curve. At the end of last year, you saw the stock market going crazy, and you saw everyone pricing in Fed rate cuts as of March. Now, if we were to actually have those Fed rate cuts as of March, that means that the economy is in a bad situation and that the Fed really has to cut and we have a real recession. So this is really the stock market not giving you the right signals and telling you they, they want to have their cake and eat it too. Um, but Jamie Dimon, so he he said that, you know, he sort of always gives this not like the world is going to hell in a handbasket, but he said essentially the, the U.S. economy is not as hunky-dory. I mean, I agree with him there. The U.S. economy isn't hunky-dory. And I think you would not have, I mean, you really wouldn't have the uh, the, the, the uh, approval ratings we have for the Biden administration and for Biden are really, really poor. And that's largely based on the economy. I mean, I think that's, you know, there's several things that people factor that into in approval ratings. I mean, I think some of the biggest issues are our border security, our, um, are the economy and foreign policy. But I think the number one is the economy. And, and you know, it gets confusing because people say, well, look at the economy and look at the jobs and look how great everything is. But if you're a small business owner like myself, or which is small businesses are the backbone of the U.S. economy and a huge portion of the U.S. economy. So if you're a small business owner, you have not seen a pay raise, which means inflation is really impacting you in a completely different way than a lot of people who get a W-2 and may have seen a pay bump. But that pay bump is not commensurate with inflation. And now that we've had 
several years of inflation, particularly in 2022 and still inflation in 2023. Just because your rate of inflation doesn't come in, is is not is coming down does not mean that you're still not you're still seeing price increases at the grocery store. And those are the most painful. The fact that we're still seeing prices accelerate at the grocery store are really, really painful for the U.S. consumer. And that's why the state of the economy is just not as healthy as it was. We've had so many years of inflation now, which we didn't have before. And so it's not going to take much. It, you know, it could be, it could be a, a spike in oil prices. It could be almost anything that really hurts the consumer. And that means that, yes, things are going along okay, but they're not, they're not in a good position. And that is really reflective of a Biden's approval rating. Now, um, that so Jamie Dimon was saying that he didn't think everything was hunky dory. He was a little bit more optimistic on China. I mean, he didn't come out and say he's an optimist, but what he said on China, I think, is super important because it really tells you how the it really tells you how um, business leaders how they approach China and how in turn the U.S. approaches China. And it's typically why you see so much dovishness out of um, even when administrations want to be hawkish at first, they tend to be more dovish because they let businesses lead them. And Jamie Dimon was saying that he has a lot of branches and they do a lot of business within China. And yes, they're more skeptical and it's and, and it's not great, but that even it's in the U.S. interest for them to do it and. The the U.S. the U.S. government gets a lot of intel from them. That is not, you know, that, that that does not make me feel better about investing in China. That doesn't make me feel better about the aggressiveness of the of the Chinese government. Um, and it doesn't it doesn't change anything in terms of if you're a real analyst on China to understand the economy. It just makes me think that business leaders, um, everybody wants some money, and they think that China is a market for that. Um, so I, I wouldn't I wouldn't listen to um, those comments and say that's a you know that means that uh, the U.S. should be doubling down on business in China. Nor does it mean that there's a healthiness and a floor within the Chinese economy, um, because it's it's so convoluted and so messy and really you know a house of cards um, that you, you can't get to the bottom of it and you haven't seen the flush out on the housing side. So with that, folks, um, this is truly one of the best podcasts that's there. I, I'm so pumped that this is episode 100. Um, this is an incredible panel discussion. I am um, really want to thank the Denver Earth Resources Library and Amanda Cohn. Um, I want to thank them for having me on their board, but at letting us do this panel. It was really a success and uh, look forward to hearing your guys' feedback. So talk to you soon, folks. Bye. All right, Amanda, thank you for having us. I'm very excited to be here. I'm a midstream guy by trade, so this is all kind of black magic for me. It was kind of cool <laughs> to walk around and look at some color and pencils. Um, all right, so kick it off kind of on a macro and then we'll dive into the Rockies, being that this is a Rockies Expo. Um, obviously, some hot topics I want to touch on. Continued consolidation um, within our industry. And what does that mean? Pioneer, Exxon, Chevron, Hess. Who's next? Uh, Chris, being that you are a, a deal man um, with EnergyNet, I wanted to kick it off with you and kind of, what do you see next? Uh, what's to come for small operators like Fundair and some other small operators here? Yeah, no, um, great question. So this, been, this 2023 has been a, a big year so far or biggest year in many, 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 many years for consolidation. Uh, you know, prior to Exxon Pioneer and Chevron Hess, you had Exxon buying Denberry, uh, Chevron buying PDC Energy. Uh, you also had Ranger, uh, the Canadians buying, Bate or, excuse me, Baytex buying Ranger uh, and the Eagleford. Eagle, uh, Ranger used to be Penn, Virginia, and you also had Permian Resources uh, buying Novo or buying Earthstone. And Earthstone themselves, uh, you know, they had been gobbling up um, uh, private equity sponsored teams on a really fast clip. I mean, they had bought Novo for a couple billion dollars, um, you know, a month or two before Permian Resources acquired them. So with the groups, I guess, starting first, like with the groups like a Ranger or an Earthstone, 
or Silverbow or other small to mid cap publicly traded companies. Uh, it's really try to get try to scale up and get big and get relevant quick, or uh, you don't have access to capital. Uh, and I kind of view these things through um, more of a invest generalist financial viewpoint of you know if you're a generalist investor and you're going to allocate capital to energy, you know buy Exxon, buy Chevron, buy Oxy, buy EOG, buy Pioneer. But as you get to a small cap, you know uh, there's there's less reason to for those to get the investment love from the you know, generalist investment community or pension fund things like that. Uh, so they're trying to get big quick. Uh, you know it is interesting um, that you know some of the the comments that uh, that Scott Sheffield made that you know it's it's very difficult for a for a, a large independent to remain a large independent. I mean it is it is a treadmill. Uh, so it's, I mean it was a a great finish for Pioneer, but it, I think it says a lot about pub, like independent publicly traded companies that they need a bigger balance sheet because it is a treadmill. Uh, I do think the, I mean, the, the, if you look at the map in the Midland Basin where Pioneer's uh, acreage overlaps with, with Exxon Mobil's, it's just immense. I mean, it, it, it's the mothership, it's a factory. Uh, and then with Chevron buying uh, Hess, I mean, Guyana's, the, Guyana's the, probably the jewel, but they also get the Williston Basin with it. Uh, but I think we will continue to see, I mean, with, with the recent kind of downturn in price, maybe a little bit of pause, and you've seen Marathon, Conoco, Devon all, you know, publicly state that they're fine just being themselves, uh, while there is a lot of rumors floating around that there would be a next kind of consolidation mega merger. I do think you see BP and Shell off to the side. Uh, I don't really see them doing anything. I mean, my personal opinion, I don't really see EOG or Oxy doing anything, uh, just, uh, company you know, uh, uh, nature of those companies and Oxy still digesting Anadarko. Um, I would think that Conoco would love to have, you know, Diamondback or somebody like that in their portfolio. Uh, uh, and I think you'll continue to see kind of in the, like, you know, Permian Resources and Earthstone were of similar size. I think you can you will cont continue to see two similar companies in a similar basin or have complementary assets combining to get bigger scale. Yes. I'll build on that. That's great. I mean, you're the expert, Chris, but I, I will throw it in there from an engineer's perspective, kind of how I think about the underpinning of all this is, um, and this is a little bit of a, a nod to Ryan Fiesel at JP Morgan, who hosted a uh, energy finance breakfast this year, and he really kind of nailed it and kind of the way things were setting up. But you have a picture where we as an industry were leveraged for so long at such a high level. And then after COVID and going through COVID, we became unlevered, essentially. And now... Um, with all this additional cash flow coming with rising prices, uh, companies have gone to, you know, paying back uh, their debt uh, to become debt free. They've gone to uh, issuing dividends, uh, fixed and variable. They've gone to buying buying back their own shares, um, and yet there's still this excess cash that remains. And what do we do with this cash? And it felt like coming into the year, the setup was very much where people were going to be focused on getting quality inventory, and it was either that or grow more. And and boards and and market analysts weren't super excited to see people start growing again and start uh, going down that road, rather focus on profitability. So then there's this push towards where do we get this quality inventory? And so uh, that seems to have played itself out a bit. And then to the point you're making about some of these transactions, the small cap to large cap, it's a big deal, right? I mean, Chevron and PDC and the DJ was a major transaction. Um, you know, Chevron had this trading multiple of six EV enterprise value over EBITDA and then you had PDC with a three. And so you're literally going out there and you're picking up this company by issuing some shares and then you're moving, 
moving those barrels over into a different column and you're increasing the value by doing it that way. So there's those kind of things at play where there's, there's gravity and, and it feels like there's uh, room for more of that. Yeah, so I'm going to take the liberty before I jump into the acquisition thing, um, just to say that uh, to thank you all for being here. I think it's a really nice uh, it's a really nice representation to have a group of folks in Denver uh, talking about oil and gas because I think we forget that this city is an oil and gas hub and a city, um, and that the Rockies are part of that. So it's great to see that True has their own beer, which is pretty awesome. Um, <laughs> and uh, and I'm a to I'm a total nerd, as you know, Petronerds. Um, so I love the rocks, and I'm privileged to be on the board of the Denver Earth Resources Library, um, and did. Have have a hand on putting this together and we will be turning this into a podcast so just forewarned um, so on the acquisitions I think um, you know we're at 75 dollar oil so to uh, Chris's point um, and just harp, you know echoing both of these guys um, 75 dollar oil is not probably the price you're you know you could see acquisitions here I do think there's probably a little bit of a cool off I have not been on the bandwagon that there would be this massive massive wave um, although it was interesting to see Exxon and Chevron back to back I think that was probably a little bit of game of they had this working in the system, and then they, these just came through at the same time. Um, I think they're—I mean—they're pretty solid. Uh, I think it's really great to hear Darren Woods, the CEO of Exxon, actually start talking about the rock again. T start talking about technology. I mean, I love Pioneer, but if you look at their decline curves for their—I mean—for the Permian, they haven't been amazing. Um, and so that is part of a—you know—it's really nice to hear Darren Woods say, you know, we think we can do more with this, um, and I think we need to be thinking like. I think they can do more with it. So it's a positive thing on that front. When we see consolidation here in Colorado, um, it's a little bit of a different story. I mean, the reason we have we tend to have consolidation in Colorado is partly because of the fact of the regulatory environment and the limited ability to get permits. Um, and obviously, Nickel Road has a lot of permits um, and is doing great. And their operators are extremely successful, like Fundair um, and Nickel Road. But I think you have to put uh, the acquisition environment is not the same across the country. Um, and I think at $75 oil, you know, if we are to see some real backsliding in oil prices and a recession, um, that impacts just all businesses, not just oil and gas, but it impacts the way people transact and do businesses. So we could have a little bit of a cool off there. Um, and I don't think that's a bad thing. Um, I also think it's really positive that uh, we could have, you know, we might have softer oil prices this year, but we could have higher gas prices. And that would do, uh, that would be a boon for a lot of private operators as well. And we would see a lot of activity probably throughout the Rockies. So we can get into more of that later, but that's just my sense on the acquisition environment. Great. A follow-up question is Chris and maybe to a lesser extent Andy, just being that Chris sees so much deal flow. Do you see some of these consolidators starting to sell off non-core assets in a way that, you know, we have small operators in this room, grow businesses and start to start the cycle again? Yeah, so um, my, so I've, I've been with EnergyNet uh, since 2002. I just had my work anniversary of 21 years uh, back in uh, end of October. So I've seen kind of this happen uh, before. Uh, at, at different stages, but typically when you know there is a big wave of consolidation in the next you know 18 to 24 months afterward, uh, those assets are being rationalized and the portfolio is being you know high graded by those companies and uh, assets that don't or basins or assets that maybe uh, don't compete for don't, don't compete for capital are, are divested. Uh, and that's where you know a lot of companies have been made over the past 20 years with you know who, you know name name a, a large company whether it's you know, uh, you know, whoever that's shed off assets and somebody else has stepped in to buy that and turned it into something that the, the previous owner didn't think it could be. Uh, so that's kind of the, the, I mean, it, it, the, the circle of life, if you will. Uh, I think all this, you know, uh, who knows if the, if the you know, Hess's Williston assets come to market, 
uh, you know, it's still kind of a question, you know, is, is Chevron a long-term holder of, of PDCs, you know, uh, Wattenberg assets, uh, you know, uh, Pioneer was cored up already. Uh, they didn't, they, they've already, they already were a pure play Midland Basin uh, company. But I mean, Exxon's been selling assets all year uh, and or past couple of years, and I think that will continue. Uh, but when we saw um, uh, BHP buy BP or uh, BP buy BHP's assets a number of years ago, there was a big wave of, of selling after that. Uh, so I think that will continue again. Yeah, I just I'll just add to that. Uh, I think I totally agree. I think a lot of those assets that may arrive on the marketplace may be the feedstock for the next round of PE funds and companies and and lo and behold that is still a thing and, and yep. it's coming back and so we'll talk a little bit about that. Yep. yep, Civitas was one that you know in the DJ that they just had a um, what four packages in the DJ. Yep. Um, okay, Trisha, let's get some expertise from a Petro nerd here. Um, volatility in the markets, uh, recession theme has obviously been going around for the last couple of years. Uh, Fed continues to increase rates which is actually personal is affecting um, I think all of us in this room, as you look at your RBLs or whatever debt you have on your business, geopolitical risk, kind of how do we shake out from an oil and gas standpoint over the medium to long term? So it's a whole lot. Um, yeah, I mean, it's, it's really serious. And I have a smile on my face because I think if, if you know me or you listen to me, you know that I, I think knowledge is power. And I think the more you know, um, the more you can navigate this market. And as you know, the talk of acquisitions, you know, you should be looking at a downturn in oil price as an opportunity to, to be stepping in, especially in Colorado, especially in a harsh regulatory environment, especially when the entire world is anti-oil and gas. Um, it's, a, it's a really good opportune time to find entry points. Um, but we do have um, incredible geopolitical risk right now. The fact that we're seeing $75 WTI, um, and we saw last night, you know, $79 Brent, and we have two hot wars going on. We have a, a really, really volatile situation in the Middle East um, a, an ongoing war in Ukraine and uh, that has no end in sight. And we have uh, tensions in the South China Sea with China, uh, with, with, with the Philippines that no one's talking about. Um, and we have this massive elephant in the room, which is China, um, and very interconnected with Iran, very interconnected with the Middle East war, very interconnected with the, with the war with Ukraine. I mean, China's basically funding both of those um, hand over fist. And so we have, you know, serious political dynamics there, and that's really not being baked into oil prices right now. Um, partly that's because I think oil traders, uh, we have very thin trading on oil right now. We have traders that really don't understand uh, the complex geopolitical nature of what's going on. Um, the spillover of what could happen in the, on, for the Israeli-Hamas war, I mean, Iran is producing well north of three million barrels per day. They're exporting over two million barrels a day directly to China. Um, if you just put that at $80 WTI, we're looking at 4.8 billion a month that China is giving to Iran. So, no, they're plenty well funded, and they damn well funded the, the Hamas and Hezbollah. Um, so, it is these. Are, they're not proxies. They're they're, they're actual proxies. Um, so, we have 20 million barrels a day. They go through the Strait of Hormuz, um, and that's uh, that 20 million barrels a day. That's you know, I think the market is realizing, hey, it's not going to spill over all the way to Strait of Hormuz. But if you think that Iran isn't interested in, in messing with geopolitics, they, they most definitely are. Um, and the run-up to this, I, I don't know how much you want the backstory, but I mean, we went from 94 WTI on September 27th to 75 today. So that's a pretty quick turnaround. And so we had this nice ramp up. Everybody plowed into oil. They thought that we, you know, there was a lot of calls to go bullish on in the second half. And then 
um, we had this immediate pullback. And part of that pullback was obviously that we, we were too far up. So you have a lot of people asking, what is the fundamental price of oil? Where, where should we be? Is it $60 oil and we've got a $20 risk premium on top of it? Um, and then we have to start asking, okay, really where is demand then? And um, I have not bought into the 17 million barrel a day, 2 million barrel a day demand growth from China all year. Uh, the China weakness is so serious. I mean, it is palpable how bad business is in China. The, um, the government overhang, I mean, it's not overhang, it is government's hand in everything, twisting it around. Um, people are getting, uh, business leaders are getting arrested, foreign business leaders. You're not seeing a lot of foreigners go to China anymore. You're seeing increasingly Western business leaders choose not to go to China because they're nervous about getting arrested. Um, so it's a, and, and you have a property market that is 30% of their economy that is just uh, going into the dumps. And even major cities like Beijing and Shanghai have seen property price declines. So that in and of itself would pull the Chinese economy down and would actually pull the world economy down. So it's interesting that the International Energy Agency all year has shown this 2 million barrel a day demand growth at 17 million barrels a day for China. Um, and something's just off there, right? That the, the, you can't have your cake and eat it too. So clearly they're not demanding 17 million barrels a day if we're at $75 WTI. And part of that's because they, they were importing a lot of crude oil, they're probably stockpiling some of that. And then they were importing a lot and they, in this recent refining run up that you've seen where refineries have been making a lot of money, that's kind of over now with refining margins, but they wanted to play a part of that. So they were refining a bunch and now they have all this product. Um, which is going onto the world market. Russia has been extremely resilient. They're producing 11 million barrels per day, about, and they're exporting as much as they were exporting pre-war in Ukraine. Um, it's just going largely to India and into China, but it's just moving around the globe. And we are producing 11, or, sorry, we are producing 13 million barrels a day. You don't hear anyone on TV talking about that. You certainly don't hear the White House talking about that, but we are producing 13 million barrels a day. We are all-time record highs for oil and gas production with less rigs, way less rigs than we had pre-COVID. And part of this is because we're doing longer laterals. Um, this, the tiered acreage, I love to debate it and talk about it. Uh, Chris and I debated it and talked about it in, in the podcast he was on with me. And um, I think tier one, tier three, tier four acreage, you know, we talk about all these tiers, but what private companies like Fundair and, and Nickel Road tend to do with, with so-called lesser tiers is they develop it and they turn it into tier one acreage and then it gets bought up or consolidated. So there's a really positive story in US oil and gas, but sometimes there's all these complex issues and you have to dissect them and then bring them back together and understand how they impact your business. So these geopolitical complexities are huge. They're weighing on, on uh, they're, not, they're misunderstood. They're not uh, being funneled, I think, appropriately into prices. And then your question on the Fed um, and interest rates, it is, it's certainly impacting the ability for, I think, companies to access capital. Um, we're seeing that not just in oil and gas, but every business, tech, um, interest rates are very high. So the ability to get capital and fund new development. So EVs are out the window and green, green technology is extremely expensive. It didn't work when interest rates were low. It sure as hell doesn't work when interest rates are high. Um, but we also, with those two ongoing wars in Ukraine, you've seen the, the yields for treasury yields go up, or these two ongoing wars is because we're gonna have to be spending more abroad on these wars. And we already have a trillion, you know, we already have $1.7 trillion deficit and uh, we have a trillion dollars in interest payments, just in interest payments alone for our debt. So a trillion dollars is more than our military spending. So we're really in this unique, messy situation when you look at interest payments, geopolitics, oil prices, the economy, and the economy is not sitting well. I mean, everybody can say we're all doing good, we're spending, but the credit card debt's up, auto debt's up, you name it, it's up. So, you know, yes, are we headlong into a recession? 100%. Is Europe already there? Absolutely. Um, and so this matters for oil prices. Um, I, don't, I don't think you have to freak out. I think you have to just be really smart. Um, if you've, I'm third generation oil and gas, 
gas, so we all know this is commodity business. It is boom and bust. You better buckle up and get smart and um, embrace the opportunity. One, one thing I'd add just specifically, well, well, another fun thing you can do on Trisha's podcast is you can speed it up two times, you know, if, she's not talking, <laughs> if, you, if, she's, if she's talking too slow and you just want to get through some time, you know, you can speed up two, three, three times. Uh, uh, but, uh, you know, uh, specifically uh, uh, towards, uh, you know, U.S. upstream acquisitions and investments uh, for, I don't know, 15 years, uh, kind of PDP, PV10 has been kind of religion. I should get PV10 for my, for my production. But, you know, interest rates have gone up so fast in 18 months, 24 months that I can put my, I mean, I don't have $50 million, but if I had $50 million that I was going to spend on a PDP deal, I can also put that in a you know, 6% certificate of deposit. And that seems a lot less risky than the PDP deal. Uh, or if I need to get bank debt to, you know, to, uh, to, to buy a PDP deal, I mean, the bank debt's going to be at probably at least eight and a half, nine percent 9%, I would think, on a good day uh, with a good lender that likes me. Uh, but you can't. So what we've seen is the, the multiples or the transactions, you know, uh, you know and if you look at all these large transactions that have gone on in uh, 2023 and late 2022, I mean, these huge companies are trading at two time, you know, two and a half times earnings or three and a half times earnings. And it used to be, you know, four or five years ago, I mean, five times earnings, six times earnings used to be kind of the, I mean, pretty, pretty, pretty standard, I would think. Mm -hmm. But the, 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 the multiples have gone down also because the, the way that EMPs trade have gone down. Andy, I'm going to kick it to you. Actually, I want you to elaborate on that. But also, because of your knowledge of both you and your wife in the at capital markets, I would love to hear you talk about kind of deal structures currently. What are you seeing as far as debt financing? Um, farm-ins, farm-outs, what structures are getting done in the oil and gas space today? Is there money, is there capital, either on the equity side or the debt side? Yeah, people are getting <laughs> creative, that's for sure, because the access to capital, that crunch of capital is real, the high cost of capital. Um, I think right now, uh, what we're seeing is just generally more risk, right? And so, uh, from a debt perspective, um, the ESG push and everything that came with that, there certainly was a lack of, or a loss of fashionability of investing in oil and gas, and we felt that. Um, the, the regional bank crisis, I think, probably put some stress on the banks that do a active part of lending in our industry as well. And it just feels like, in general, banks have gotten more selective, and it's more relationship-based in terms of who they're working with. That being said, there's still banks that are doing wonderful things. We've worked with UMB, they've been great partners, um, and, and I think, that will kind of continue with well-known teams, but I think it does kind of offer a, a barrier to, to new teams, if you will. Um, from an equity perspective, um, I do think there are choppy waters right now, and I don't think anybody you know, doesn't, doesn't recognize those choppy waters. Uh, and, and while I mention that, let me just say a little commercial for Trisha. We've been, we've been working with Trisha for two years now, and she does an amazing job. She's an incredible advocate for our industry. Anybody who's interested in getting a taste of what's going on in the markets and trying to struggle to quantify uncertainty. I've, uh, last few years, I've learned how to forecast my business through like $40 oil and $100 oil. <laughs> uh, but Trisha helps us navigate those waters. So uh, certainly uh, talk to her if you need some guidance on these things. It not only will be the best dinner conversation you'll have that <laughs> week, but uh, she'll, uh, she'll offer you some great advice. So um, from the equity side, people are trying to get the momentum back. And I think... Um, you know, for a long time, there was just a big lull in private equity raising. There's probably three lost years in there. And now we're down to a fraction of what, what dollars used to be coming into the space. And um, there is a bit of a constructive dynamic, though, that I think is building in the background. So it's coming back. 
um, you, you've seen a lot of PE firms go back now and start trying to raise funds again. And I can't say that they're all gonna be successful getting to where they wanna to get to, but um, investors are interested again. Part of it is a little bit of, you know, people are losing uh, their belief in what these greener technologies can, can yield for them um, and how those promises get met. And I think part of it is also just the dynamic because we've had a really low amount of investment in oil and gas in a long time. The capital's way down. I think in the last 12 months, um, our reinvestment rate in, in the United States has dropped now to about 40%. So you've seen 90 billion in operating cash flow and you've got 40 billion in capital spent. So people are really paring back. And so uh, I think that's generally how people are getting through this period of time is people are trying to say, hey, I'm gonna recycle my own capital. Um, and that's why that's, even as prices has run, have run a little bit, people have kind of resisted the urge to, uh, to continue to go back to growth mode again. Um, but access to capital, uh, is, it's still there. It's, it's gonna be more selective. It's gonna be a finite pool of capital and, and people are gonna be uh, very competitive in getting to that capital. As far as structures go, uh, we're seeing a lot of things. A lot of these big deals have been stock deals. I think you're gonna continue to see that. People keeping their cash for um, once they buy these deals to, to drill those out, uh, realize that. I think there is a lot of interest in doing more um, creative deals uh, on inventory, uh, things of that nature. I mean, in the DJ Basin, the non-op market has always been very, very strong. As long as you had permits and steel and you mm. had you know, uh, a line of sight on things, people wanted access to those returns, but um, people just weren't so necessarily sure about whether they wanted to operate. And so there's been a little bit less focus on operating uh, in places like the DJ. But uh, in general, the access to capital, it, the crunch is real. It's probably uh, gonna grow a little bit as people start to see the constructive cycle that's building for oil. Um, and, uh, and we'll have to keep an eye on it. Um, that being said, I do think there is, with the choppy waters, there is a constructive cycle building for, for, for oil. And so um, generally speaking, um, if you look at demand uh, per capita, um, and you look at you know non-OECD non countries versus OECD countries, um, you know so there's seven billion people in the world that uh, use less than the uh, the energy of a refrigerator each year in the United you know in the world than what we use in the United States for every individual. So uh, people are trying to get access to energy, reliable energy. That's not stopping, and um, you know especially in non-OECD countries where the growth is happening on a larger percentage basis, they have more dependence on fossil fuels. And so I think the demand for uh, oil is gonna continue to be there um, and capital will probably be there for it. But right now it's a little bit, uh, it's a little bit choppy, but uh, um, still encourage uh, everybody to continue to look at options though. One of the things I'd add is just, you know, probably 2014, 2015, you'd go to a conference uh, and you know, the. The quote was, you know, there's $125 billion of private equity dry powder available through NCAP and Kane and Denim and Warburg and Blackstone and KKR and Apollo. And some of those, the, you know, have, have, have you know, shifted away from oil and gas. But right now, uh, that number is probably $35 million or $30, 30 billion. Uh, but NCAP, Quantum, NGP, Pearl, Carnelian are all in the process of raising new funds right now. Uh, some are, are meeting their hard caps, some are getting close. Uh, but you know, within the next probably six to nine months, I would say all of those will have raised new funds. Uh, but it will be a, a different iteration this time. I mean, if you recall, you know, 
there at one point there were 500 or 550 private equity back sponsored management teams uh, sm much smaller teams uh, with smaller commitments it seemed I always joke you know it seemed like the you know I'd turn around and the, the cast of Stranger Things was getting a 200 million dollar commitment and I'm like these guys are 15 they only work at Pioneer for six months uh, but this next iteration is much larger teams so far. It's, you know, like Dub Eagle has $2 billion. You know, Rockcliffe is worth, you know, $5 billion. Uh, you know, Athon is worth a couple billion dollars. Uh, uh, much larger commitments to go after bigger, bigger asset acquisitions. The kind of lease and flip is, is not there right now, or it, it's not necessarily coming back, but it will be interesting kind of as we talked about as these mega mergers have happened over the past, you know, 18 to 36 months as those assets get shed you know we saw you know you, you'll see private equity sponsored teams that know the Eagleford or know the DJ or know the Williston pick 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 that up and, and make build it into something big again I, I would just want to add so I want to thank Andrew that was very kind um, those comments but um, and it's it's awesome to Mike I love working with my clients because they'll become good friends um, and we do have good conversation uh, but I will say that the acquisition environment, I think you have to realize that in the context of how uh, Chevron, the Chevron acquisition of Hess and the uh, Exxon acquisition of Pioneer, how it was touted on CNBC, on Bloomberg, on the FT and Wall Street Journal was in the context of the energy transition. Um, and these were all stock uh, deals. So it was basically what the market was allowing them to do um, and what the street was allowing them to do. Uh, Chevron got penalized a little bit, not massively. I, they're okay with that. I mean, I would be, Guyana's amazing. You know, the Wilson Rock is incredible. Um, and if you know Hess, you know that this is, this is great rock, um, especially in the Wilson. So, I mean, but you have to think about these are all stock acquisitions. Um, these weren't just, we didn't just buy them and gobble them up. They have a ton of money, all these companies do, so they need to do something with it. And they want more production, they want more resources. But the way it was talked about, I mean, even on, I mean, the way it was discussed on the, on the market was that, oh, well, we're going to need oil for a few more years, so I guess it makes sense. And you have to realize that that's one that's not true. It's incredibly naive, but it's how the the market is selling it. And so it's difficult that that's not selling it to a long only investor. That's not saying, hey, buy my I'm Exxon, buy my stock for the long term, because the the market is still sell, treating this as though these guys are only going to be around for a few more years. And that's why I think it's incredibly important to be having these conversations to be, you know, truly allowing people like me to be out there talking about this stuff, because you have to have another voice in the market saying, no, this, these companies are going to be around for decades and decades and decades, and you have to invest in them so that they can reinvest and put the drill bit into the ground and drill and produce oil. And you know, all of the course of last year, people should have been drilling and producing oil. All of the course of 2021. Actually, and frankly, all of the course of 2020, you should have at least been drilling and completing. You didn't have to turn the wells on, but you should have been active as opposed to running scared because you've probably been around this business. But we have to really understand that that, that, that acquisition environment and the lack of capital, yes, we can still get capital. And I think over the next few years, you'll see creative capital. But we have to be really smart that we're, I mean, look at the funds, how much they've dropped. You know, the ability for, uh, Chris was on a panel um, when we met in, in June this year in uh, Dallas at, for the Oklahoma Petroleum Alliance meeting. And he was with a, a gentleman from NGP. And NGP was talking about how their fund was half of what it was before, even though the returns on these investments are better than they've ever been. I mean, oil and gas is making more money than it's ever made, and it's profitable. And you're able to actually use your own cash flow into operations. This is what everyone wanted the industry to do, but you can't, your multiples on these companies are crap. Um, and so you have to, you know, these public companies need to be out there telling the story. People need to be out there 
telling the market why they need to invest in oil and gas and taking the narrative back. But it's really important to see that well, I'm not saying it just dwindled a little bit. Uh, you're seeing from the credit side, you're seeing the ability to get insurance. Um, the ESG movement and the energy transmission movement and the anti-oil and gas movement is serious. And there has to be a big, significant pushback against it. Um, and you guys in this room are it. I mean, so you know, everybody has to play their part, but it, it is real in terms of the lack of capital access. Yes, you can get it, but it, we should be getting much, much more given the profitability of this industry and how good everyone is doing, the longer laterals, the ability to get more with less, we should be seeing a lot more funding into this space. Thanks, Tricia. Uh, let's jump into the Rockies. We got about 15 minutes here. Um, Chris, I want you to kick this off. I mean, when we at Fundair, Cody and I always talk about um, how do we get Rockies valuations up with Midland Basin, Delaware Basin, Haynesville to some extent. Um, what are you seeing from Rockies versus other basins on kind of price and uh, is it an inventory issue? Um, <laughs> I would say that there's been less general A&D activity in the DJ Basin. Um, I, I think the, the it is quality rock, uh, and I think I, I, from an A&D perspective, there, there are fewer opportunities. There's only, you know, we can only knock on Civitas's door so many times, Oxy's door so many times, Chevron's door. There, there's fewer operators in kind of the core of the core of the DJ Basin, uh, fewer opportunities, so you see less, less deal flow. Uh, I, I do think the, I mean, the the rock quality is you know uh, uh, is is in you know is, is tier one rock quality. Uh, I do think that the regulatory environment scares people away that aren't in the basin that think that you know if they were to make an acquisition, what what am I getting myself into? Am I getting myself into a you know California situation or offshore BOEM type situation? Like what am like for for new entrants like right now in the Permian and Midland Delaware Basin, a new entrant will jump in you know without seeing how shallow the water is. You know they'll cannonball in you know off the off the high dive and if they have an opportunity, DJ Basin in Colorado specifically, people are a little less wary. So it just the, the competition for those at those specific opportunities or assets not as great. Um, I, I would say. Is this where I'm supposed to push back on that? Yeah, right? yeah. <laughs> no, I think, I mean, that's right. I mean, listen, the regulatory environment in, Chi in Colorado is very challenging. Um, not every acre is created equal, right? So it depends on what your zip code is. And so I think there still will be uh, interest in assets uh, that are culturally less sensitive. Um, I think it depends on operator quality. I think, um, you know, I, I think private operators are probably still advantaged to some degree because we get to kind of put our head down and focus on staying in our lane and doing our thing. I think the public companies feel more pressure in terms of what they're being asked to uh, to take on or the scope that they may be trying to take away. Uh, but I think in general, yes, the DJ has great rock and we have great uh, return of capital and efficiency. And, and so uh, where you can get permits and and move forward, there's going to be continued focus and continued investment. But um, I think the pace of permitting is kind of what I keep a close eye on. We were at about a thousand permits about a year ago, and uh, we had a rig count of about close to 20. And now we're down to about a dozen rigs, and we have a permit count of under 700. So mm -hmm. the question will be, can, can, the, can the new regime settle in? Can, can the permits continue to feed new activity? Uh, the quality of the resource is definitely there. It's just going to be uh, a matter of watching some of the rulemakings and and uh, hopefully uh, there will remain interest there. Trisha, all good? I mean, I have plenty to say, but we can move on if you want. <laughs> I, uh, well, let's just hand it over. Well, let's go to, um, I want to hand it back to Andy. Um, Two in a row. Because I think, right. let's talk about services. Um, okay. We, Fundair, drilled our first seven-well pad here earlier this year and 
we have to slot into a frat crew because there wasn't an available frat crew. Everyone was contracted. Casing was at all time highs. Um, what I hear is it's now twice 50% is what it was a year ago. So how is that coming back? Are you seeing that from a, are you able to find frat crews, drilling rigs, labor, steel? Yeah, this is one of those things where usually when you're a small guy, scale isn't a good thing. But I think in our situation, because we have a lot of permits and because we have flexibility around when we can operate, um, we use our scale to our advantage. So we will pick our spots very carefully. So where we can find these gaps between larger operators with larger occupations, you know, we may have wanted to drill those in Q2, maybe they end up in Q3, right? But we can go get the right crew, go get the right rig, and uh, we can get some quality, uh, you know, at bats at the on, on our wells. Uh, the other thing is, as a small operator, or just in general, to try and combat some of the increases in costs over the last year and a half, is try to get a little more creative, right? I mean, we're not part of a big company, so we don't have a, a belief system. We just try to find 10 to 20 percent improvement in everything we do. Uh, so we'll go out there and we'll try to figure out, like, oh, okay, maybe we don't need rotary steerable. Okay, maybe we don't need to pump all of that profit. And uh, we'll, we won't spend money on some things that other people will spend money on. But uh, the general thing there is trying to find ways to buffer to that. And I will say this as well, though. Um, there's a strong relationship between WTI uh, <laughs> lagging over time and service costs, right? <laughs> and so we've started to see that now coming back down. Uh, steel's come down. Completions is modulating. There's still some pressure from a rig side on, you know, kind of these basin-to-basin forces. But um, we, we have made very good returns on wells at... $6 million DNC capital. We've made very good returns on wells at $3.5 million DNC capital. I think one of the things about the DJ is we are very resilient. We have nice low break-evens. So, uh, but being small is nice because when you have a continuous program, you, you have to kind of take the good with the bad, and, and being small, you can be a little more nimble. Any issues finding available crews? Are crews going to Midland? Are crews going to Delaware Basin? We haven't had any problem with access to services at this point. I think my only concern in that regard is as a small operator, there used to be more of us because of the consolidation, there's not as many. And so where you would have like a, an entire frat crew for one of the big guys uh, dedicated to smaller operators, uh, if that number of operators starts to dwindle a little bit, then it becomes a, maybe a bit more challenging or you have to be more flexible in terms of when you take those services. Um, but up to this point, we have not had a problem getting access. Great. Yeah. I mean, you know, and the Rockies are a, a little bit tricky. You have to know the whole, it's like you have the Uinta, which is really picked up in Utah. Um, the powder is, you know, everybody's great love for a geologic play, which is awesome for geologists, a little bit harder for repeat, knowing every well is going to be, you know, 500 barrels per day, 1,000 barrels per day. In the DJ, you don't have that. I mean, you have, it is phenomenal rock, and um, it's easy to drill, it's known, it's a little shallower. So despite the regulatory headwinds and stuff, you do know the break-evens and they're great. And that is awesome for service costs. But I would just say on the service side, I, I work with upstream guys, I work with service companies, I work with folks in Washington and big uh, entities. And um, the service sector is an awesome business. But you know, we've been sort of lucky in Colorado to have Liberty Oilfield, or now Liberty Energy, based here in Denver. Um, because they, you know, we're out of here, but if they weren't here, you know, and Liberty, I mean, your, your Liberty crews actually live here. And that's not typical for most 
those frat crews, right? They actually, they travel to enforce, uh, depending on the basin, and, and are two weeks on, two weeks off, typically. So, you know, they actually have these guys that, that stay here. And so there is a, a benefit to the folks here in the DJ that have liberty, um, just a, as a round for another, another service sector. But you have to realize that as WTI, you know, fluctuates and goes down, or is that you do have more consolidation or regulatory headwinds, or, um, you know, if, if WTI went to 50 and, and people are pulling out of the powder, that the service companies tend to, uh, you know, they, they move around with them as well. Um, and so, yes, you have, I think you do, you have real competition with the Permian, but increasingly with all the consolidation that's happened and because, um, you know, private operators and even publics, pre-COVID, you know, you basically had a frack fleet and you, you had a timing and maybe you're waiting on your frack fleet and you would frack. Um, Post-COVID, people will just drill their wells and they might sit on them for a little bit and this is like, this is everywhere and, and then they'll be, maybe they'll grab that frack crew because they're just, and that's hard for a lot of folks to navigate and it, then it's hard for folks to sort of slot in, it's hard for the service guys. But I can tell you that you do, as a, the upstream guys and the service guys, need to be talking closely right now because when prices come down and people freak out, they need to calm down and not freak out because you're already hearing operators say, hey, we need we need the service costs to come down. You're hearing service guys say, hey, um, we haven't had the inflation come down. And yes, steel and pipe and all that's come down in price, but our labor costs went way up. And so we still, we've got to get there. And you need the service companies to stay in business for the hard times, because if they go out of business, then you have no competition and then your prices just go up. So you need this, we are a unique country in that we have this amazing, incredible, nimble service sector that's really allowed this, the, the unconventional shell revolution to happen. Um, and we need to be cognizant of that. Uh, because if it's not around and if you don't have that competition and folks in the space, you're not going to be able to drill and complete those wells at when you need them. And, and the ability, yeah, you can be kind of flexible and if you're lucky, like, like Andrew's team is great, but you know, you can't always be completely flexible. I mean, you may need it at a certain time. So it's just really important, I think, for service companies and operators to be talking now. I think the greatest risk, I think, for oilfield services is that a lot of operators don't understand the market and uh, misjudge where WTI and, and, and don't appropriate this and don't have conversations with the service sector. Um, and the service guys need to, uh, and, and the operators need to appreciate that, you know, they, they need these guys in business. So it, it's a two-way street here. Yeah. Let me say one last thing. I think one of the reasons why the DJ has stayed so resilient uh, from a services perspective is because our cycle times are so short. So yep. a lot yep. of people tend yep. to realize like, you know, yeah, it, it, we can get an acre in DJ for one-tenth of what it takes to get it in the Permian, right? And the well costs are 40 to 50% lower than what they would be in the Permian, um, which is kind of a nice thing, right? Because you can make good re similar returns with a fraction of the capital mm -hmm. invested. But when you think about the scale of it, if you run a continuous rig in the DJ, you're spending money. Oh, no. I mean, you're, you're burning 50 through. 50 wells? Yeah. Yeah. So, so you know, frack crews can still afford to come here and stack those up and, and rigs as well. So uh, because of that attribute, the DJs re remain resilient. Great. Uh, hold on to the mic, Tricia. This one's for you. I came out of School Mines about 15 years ago. I worked for Greg Hines. Uh, raise your hand, Greg. Tell everyone you're here. Uh, we were a gas player. Um, Tricia, Tricia, I would love for you to... Uh, spend a little time talking about natural gas coming out of the Rockies and even more macro too, but when will Rockies gas get some love? Peons, coal bed methane powder, um, Jonah, uh, you went to base and has some gas plates. So when will uh, Rockies get some gas love? So, I mean, I love natural gas and I think it's a, it's a kind of an under or underappreciated piece of the market. Um, and it's a huge driver. Uh, I mean, natural gas prices in 2022 were the first time we saw high sustained natural gas prices. They averaged 650 in MCF in 2022. That's the first time we saw a sustained price spike since we started producing natural gas. 
I mean, Aubrey McClendon, Mark Sellis himself out of the business, and um, it's a small molecule. We know how to produce this. We have, we are, our gross withdrawals right now are 124 billion cubic feet per day of natural gas. Gross withdrawals, obviously not all of that's marketed. Just for perspective, the global market for natural gas is about 400 billion cubic feet per day. So we can produce more than, we are producing more than a quarter of that. Our ability to produce more, as almost all of you know in this room, is very, very easy. I mean, you tell the guys to go and they're gonna go and we're gonna be producing a crap ton. So it really comes, it really comes to price. And it, there's, um, you know, we do need more LNG export capacity. Uh, we need some redundancy in that, but we truly need pipelines. And so uh, we need, you know, prices to be sustain, sustained. Um, and that's tricky because it involves weather. Um, unlike Europe, we actually have a, a, a very robust uh, natural gas storage you know, system. So we have a lot of natural gas in storage. And so whenever the weather gets warm, the storage goes up. Whenever the weather cools down, the storage goes down. And that impacts price. Here in the Rockies, um, you know, it, it is about price. And it's about takeaway. But I mean, you, ha you have to have, I mean, when the problem is the Haynesville, you know, people go to town at $3 an MCF right now, they're like, oh, it's profitable, let's go back. Um, and so that gets tricky. Um, and Marcellus is capped for pipeline capacity, but you still have a lot of maintained product or ma maintenance to fill these pipelines and everything. So you still see a lot of activity in the Marcellus. I was just out there last week. Um, and despite the fact that, you know, natural gas prices have been low, um, you saw a lot of rigs pull off in the Haynesville, but you have to be careful because a lot of people think, okay, well, natural gas production is gonna come down then. No, it's not coming down because you're producing 22 BCF a day of associated gas production in the Permian. And so the tricky thing with oil and natural gas here in the U.S. is that unless oil prices cratered, we're not going to see natural gas production come down. So we really have to have, you know, things like uh, a colder winter in Europe, which we could see. I mean, you're already seeing Dutch TTF prices range around, um, European natural gas prices are ranging around $15 to $17 an MCF, way higher than they were. And um, that's obviously having an impact on the German economy and the, their economies. But that's partly because we had a sabotage of a pipeline between Finland and Estonia, this connector pipeline. Um, and if they have a colder winter, yeah, they have storage, quote, some storage, but not what they need. Um, and so prices are, are the single biggest thing for, for I think, the Rockies. Um, takeaway, and I mean, as you know, sending it to California, no one wants to talk about that, but that's where it's, a lot of it's going. Um, and California did just uh, reinstate three natural gas fired power plants that they that they were taking offline in 2026 and they're not going to because they desperately need that power. Um, and so this actually gets to my uh, ESG point is that, you know, we really do need to be talking a lot about natural gas. And, um, you know, we, can, we talk about oil and it's different, but natural gas is in the power sector. And we have a lot of natural gas that's in power generation. And um, it would help the natural gas business immensely if we continue to work on the utility side and make sure that we're not decommissioning natural gas fired power generation, which is what Bloomberg, um, in addition to coal, has put uh, billions of dollars to remove all natural gas fired power generation out of America, which would kill our economy and everything. So, you know, we, we, the utility side is, is very beholden, I think, or the, the gas side is very beholden on the utility side. But you do have a lot of people now coming up and start talking about gas price spikes because we have so much renewables on the grid right now, wind and solar, that uh, you know, we have a harsh winter in Texas or somewhere else where you know, the, the, there's some snow on the solar panels or it's too cold and the wind doesn't blow, we're gonna have gas, uh, gas spikes. So um, I recommend, as a, if you have a lot of gas exposure, when you see 350, four, hedge. 
I mean, seriously, don't get greedy. And I think a lot of people should have been hedging in 2022 when you had average of 650 in MCF. Um, and they, there was some greed there or maybe some misunderstandings of the market. But I am very bullish on it. And I think actually that 2024 could be, could in theory, there, there's definitely a case to be made where you have softer oil prices in 2024, but a little higher gas prices. And that's, a, that's just a complete game changer for the business. It creates a, a really interesting sense of sustainability and a really unique sense for, for private operators to go to town and lays the, lays the platform for a whole new wave of acquisitions um, and de-risking. Um, and there's, you know, there's a positive story in any of it, but yeah, I'm extremely bullish on, on natural gas US and the, the global demand picture. Chris, are you seeing anything in the M&A market? Uh, gas? People love, like, uh, actually buyers are lo love to buy gas assets right now. I mean, just because where the price is, they think they have a lot of upside. They're not really, you know, expected to pay for, you know, uh, expect to pay for locations. Uh, the, the sellers aren't expecting that very much. Uh, so like we have a, we have a, you know, Karis uh, operated, you know, 3,000 well, overriding royalty interest in the Piazza Basin that's getting a ton of interest right now. Uh, I would say just on the gas front, though, uh, besides the associated gas that, that comes from the Permian Basin, uh, you know, with, with uh, EnergyNet service, or in the past, I guess, two or three years, we began, we started, you know, offering a divestment service if you receive an AFE that you don't want to participate in. Somebody can buy, buy a, pay a premium to step into your shoes to pay your portion of the AFE. And we've been really pushing this to get clients and then selling it and try to build a, a marketplace that's active and aggressive. And then, you know, in February of this year, we're like, all right, push, push, push. And then we start getting all these and it's like, natural Haynesville natural gas player one or two or three is like AFE'd me and the gas is like $2. I'm like, come on guys, this isn't the ones we want to sell right now. <laughs> it's like, you guys just hold, you know, hold your horses. Uh, you know, let, let's let you know, but the Haynesville players, if they can be a little bit more disciplined, I think gas prices will, will, will rise over time. Yeah. Sounds good. I think we're set for questions. Um, if anyone has any, feel free. Yes. I'll start. So, um, Good question. Um, I mean, I think I think what it really comes down to at the end of the day is it's going to come down to what's actionable. I think uh, it just qualifies the level of uh, call it put inventory that one would have to to walk into um, is probably my my first guess. Um, in terms of um, and it's, and that's probably different for people that are looking from within the basin versus people that are coming in from outside the basin. I think that risk premium is probably a little higher. Um, but that's where that's that's where I would start, and that's where I would think that most of that's going to be generated. Yeah, I mean, it's it's it's. I'm sorry, there's a pillar behind, so I can't <laughs> see you. But um, it's a little bit different depending on. I mean, I think about it like the Middle East, right? You have a lot of the Middle East is extremely volatile. You need. Um, guaranteed a security team, uh, you know, to even do anything in the Middle East, but yet you, it's prolific, right? You, Total, the, the European, you know, ESG giant of the world has just said they're putting $27 billion into Iraq. 
Um, so, I mean, the amount of activity that you're seeing in the Middle East is massive because all these companies are betting. They know that the energy transition is happening. They know that the ESG thing is all BS. And so they're betting heartily. Um, and so you have to think of like, that's a risk. You know, there's massive, massive risk there, but you always have very active companies, companies that understand it and know it. Um, and obviously here in the US, there's definitely risk. I mean, California, um, I think you could, you could dabble in production, there's things, but and people who know it are comfortable with it, just like the folks in the Middle East know and are comfortable with it. Um, and in Colorado, the same, I think, uh, the, because the rock is so great and the break-evens are so low, there's a massive offset uh, to the regulatory side. And um, I think folks in the, in the basin, as you know, Andrew and I have talked extensively, but I think, I mean, folks in Colorado need to do a better job pushing back on the regulatory side, like really hard. Um, and being educated because uh, there's a lot more that uh, you know Colorado. I think Colorado legislators would, would like to see the business not not here. Um, but I, it's 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 one piece of a, a grander you know risk outlook, um, and it does get easier. You know, obviously, I think that's when you see riskier stuff get purchased or, or into when uh, prices are down, um, when there's softness in the market. Um, you're obviously not going to see the riskiest stuff, and I'm not talking about the DJ, but you know you're. Middle East, whatever it is. You're not going to see the riskiest stuff. Nigeria, for example, being purchased at $80 oil or $90 oil, that's going to happen at 60 um, But I still think overwhelmingly the folks that know oil and gas don't, you know, the folks in the oil and gas business, the U.S. is not viewed that way. Although, you know, Alaska, California, and if Colorado doesn't start, you know, act, changing its, its act, its actions, I will go in that category. But certainly California and Alaska are in those categories that I would say people are just you know, they don't want to touch because the, the, there's, there's not much upside. This is kind of an adjacent answer to your question, but not necessarily just all political risk, but what we've seen this year, you know, in the past, you know, 18 to 24 months is, you know, the, the companies that were intent on selling their assets, selling their company or selling all their assets, they, they as private companies, they ramped up production as much as many rigs as they could afford, as get as much production turned into PDP as you can, then at the, at the peak, sell it. And then the, the public company that bought it, you know, trying to gain inventory, took away all the rigs. Uh, but it's like they're, you know, it was kind of a, a little bit of gamesmanship to run up production as the, you know, uh, pending selling company and get it to a certain level, and that's your strike price. And then the company that buys you wants to have a longer running runway for their inventory. So. Uh, you know, all these companies are saying we need inventory, we need inventory, inventory is deplenished, uh, uh, is deplenished but they're trying to extend that fairway. Yeah, you know, and I would just add actually continental resources going private, um, that was a big thing. So if, if you continue, like if, if we get another four years of this administration, heaven forbid, um, but if we had another four years, I mean the economy would probably bust. But um, if we do that, you would see you would see the role of the privates really grow. I do think you'll see public companies go private, at least a few, and you will see consolidation in the private sector to larger private bohemoths because you simply can't function. You're not going to be able to function for another four years under this administration as well as a public company. It's going to be very, very difficult, and the risk there is, is high. So um, there is going to be, and I get a lot of questions um, on, on that, of how things change under a different administration, even if it's just, just any kind of different administration, changes a lot. The, the composition, I mean, uh, what happens to oil prices, but just the, the business environment can change a lot. Um, and there are a lot of questions there. But right now, I think people are just kind of, it's, they're in a wait and see mode. So I'll shut up after this. Uh, regulatory affairs or public affairs gentleman from Sinopause spoke at a conference in Texas. And he got up, and the first thing out of his mouth, he says, I'm from Colorado, and you were your future. So how does that play into sort of the concept of people looking for opportunities in Texas, knowing that 
potentially the regulatory risk may increase in Texas. So, so he said we are your future? Colorado, okay. the regulatory um, environment of Colorado. Yeah, I mean, so. Yeah, well, if that's the case, we're all screwed. Um, so, I mean, Texas is producing 5.6 million barrels per day at a record all-time production. Um, so the re and that's because uh, you you know you you do compete. I mean, uh, companies in the DJ have done great, but there's competition for capital between Texas and Colorado, 100 percent. Um, and you hear it from you hear it from uh, private equity entities and stuff of like how they they it's partly like I said you know folks not understanding geopolitical stuff folks not understanding partly it's because a lot of folks don't understand the DJ but that is a risk that um, you know if you allow you know if, if operators which they have increasingly been over the past three years silent and not talking and not pushing back and not investing not coming to places like this not investing in companies like Petronas not not doing stuff and getting out there and being vocal and letting people understand these risks. If they duck and cover and just say, I heart net zero, that's the risk you're in. You need to be out there, you need to be talking about this, and you have to be pushing back. And it is, uh, Texas is a state where you build, you can build pipelines. The reason people drill and produce for oil in the Permian at the, at how they're doing it is because they know the pipelines are gonna come because you can build them. You don't know that in other states. Um, Haynesville is close to the Gulf Coast, so people feel comfortable with that. But it's a, it is really serious. Um, I don't think Texas, uh, just because of uh, uh, the stance of the governor, and I know the local stuff. I know you know Austin is different, um, but a lot of it's education. And Texas has so you know the money comes from oil and gas. So I think people need to be vocal and they need to understand that. Um, and you do have to understand. I mean, I, I I'll be speaking in Dallas tomorrow, um, and I'll be spending a lot of time talking about utilities and talking about the energy transition and talking about you know power generation. Um, so you have to know more than just oil and gas and know how this fits in the broader context, but that education and pushback is uh, incredibly necessary. Um, and that's a really sad statement uh, from someone from Civitas to make. Uh, but it's, it's great. I mean, it's just sort of like, you know, don't go down the road to Colorado. Yeah, that was the cautionary tale. There was the, don't go down the same road. Thank you. Yeah, go. Along, along these same lines, basically Biden's change of leasing and, and uh, rentals and stuff for federal lands has essentially eliminated the chance for exploration, particularly for smaller companies. And all your talk is about existing plays, but you're the, we're being stymied for new plays, which I've got. <laughs> 200 million barrels or 800 million if you want to talk. Anyway, but the leasing environment for federal lands is a real stone. It's huge. Um, I mean, if you look at BLM, the even just like under the Biden administration, how much uh, Bureau of Land Management permitting has changed, it's it's significant. I mean, it changes with every administration, but really, really significant under this administration. Um, you cannot underscore it enough. And Wyoming, you know, I'm from Wyoming. I, I get it. And the BLM side is is huge. Um, Particularly for the smaller it is. That's who Yes. And um, so, you know, that we've seen a, and that's something that doesn't get articulated in Washington, is something I try to do, is that, you know, you're, and states like Wyoming, states like Alaska have told, you know, D.C. this of, hey, you're killing us because we can't, we can't get investment, we can't get these small operators to actually do business. And um, the Inflation Reduction Act has a myriad of things within it. It's not an Inflation Reduction Act because it's all spending, but it really penalizes uh, BLM permitting for oil and gas uh, because 
emissions of the of the emissions that that, that end oil eventually produces. Um, so it's uh, you know if, if the Inflation Reduction Act goes you know if we continue to have this administration and the Inflation Reduction Act goes through the way they want it to, um, you know Wyoming could really be impacted from a lot of that BLM land. Um, so but when you talk to operators in Wyoming, I mean True is one of them, but there are Anschutz, others. Um, you know these guys, a lot of them have had permits and they've been navigating through it, so it's existing permits. I know that I worked with an operator. I worked with Anschutz and I did want to move around wells. Can't move. You can't do that very easily because you can't redo your permit. So it impacts ability just to even, you know, from a geologic standpoint, a completion standpoint, where you want your well, how you want it to sit. You change your mind two years later, you want to move it. You can't do that. Um, it's not easy. And this administration um, has also limited the ability to, when an, a permit expires, you can't get it renewed. It just expires. It goes away. Um, so this is the most anti-domestic -oil, oil and gas administration we have ever had, bar none. They just lifted sanctions on Venezuela. Super awesome. Um, but they didn't say, hey, oil and gas companies would like to would like to have a talk. We'll, we'll help you get a pipeline built. We'll, we're, we're in business together because we're pro-American. Absolutely not. Um, but these conversations are hard and people don't want to have them. So, I mean, it does impact small businesses. Uh, and I would say you need to be vocal as hell about it. Um, and, uh, and the state of Wyoming and those, those uh, political folks in Wyoming need to be more vocal as well. Chris, you want to? Yeah, just BLM so, lease sales are held. Yeah, so, so we, we facilitate <laughs> the Bureau of Land Management lease sales. Uh, we just had the first one in May of, 2020, or May of this year. Uh, May 25th, 2023. That was the first one since Biden had been elected and the Inflation Reduction Act had been passed. And, uh, but it, it, there's a huge backlog of nominated leases that are not, you know, coming out the other side. Uh, they did raise the rental rates. They raised the royalty rates. Uh, there's fewer, you know, uh, there, 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 are, there were concessions within the Inflation Reduction Act with, I believe, Senator Mankin, Mankin's uh, uh, approval for MVP that, you know, had a uh, this for that, you know, if you, uh, you know, all these things you do over here makes all these new leases of federal leases available, uh, but it's really, uh, you know, it's a joke. It's a joke. Yeah. All right, we're a little bit over. Any other questions? Right here. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Sorry. Sorry. Um, so usually on, along the Gulf Coast, these companies get bought up in this activation index is like twenty thousand or thirty thousand dollars per barrel of oil production bought online with these transactions. If you look at the Hess and the Sheffield deals. Uh, I would say like I don't know if yeah I mean uh, I would say thirty five thousand to forty five thousand dollars per flowing beat for net flowing BOE per day is probably what a, a general run of the mill transaction trades for I don't know if would that yeah. Yeah. Uh, Pioneer I mean if there's if there's a jewel out there it would be Pioneer I, I mean in my from in the in shale world mm -hmm. so paying seventy five or ninety thousand dollars per barrel for all the inventory and all the infill drilling. I mean, if you're just the, the, a dollar per net flowing barrel per day is really a production number. It's not an upside number. It's not like they're playing. I mean, there could be, you could be 35,000 for flowing, net, for, net, net flowing barrel per day, and then something else for locations. That would be like a way to kind of make it, to tie things back together. And then I think just with uh, Hess, uh, uh, Guyana is kind of the gift that keeps giving. 
Yeah, I mean, the assets are, are really good. I mean, that's why they didn't get penalized. There were some modestly intelligent young men, I think, in Wall Street that understood that these are incredible, this is incredible rock. You, you have the, some of the best rock, you have incredible rock, obviously, here in Colorado, but you have some of the best rock in the entire world in, in the Permian. Um, New, those, obviously, this wasn't New Mexico, but I mean, you have, New Mexico's producing two million barrels per day, and it's two counties. Midland is just incredibly, I mean, people have been producing in Midland for 100 years. It's incredibly great rock. It is a little shallower. It's extremely well known. It did actually really well during COVID because it was a little shallower. It was more well known. People gravitated toward it. Your average lateral length in, the, in Midland is 12,000 foot. You have people doing three miles, pushing four mile long laterals. And Pioneer's assets are ridiculously consolidated. So you can push those lateral lengths to three, maybe four miles, and you, um, <laughs> it's good rock. So even if their decline curves have been off a little bit, Exxon's looking at that saying, yeah, I can do better, um, and as they should. And so, um, and Pioneer probably could do better too, they just haven't. So, I mean, there's a lot of running room. And, you know, Chris and I, we've argued on, on my podcast about it, of like, you know, how many sticks left to drill and people worry about inventory. And you can look at the map and see all the sticks and like, oh my gosh, we're not gonna have enough. Go out to Midland, drive out there, stand in, the, in, in a field and picture a four mile long lateral. Picture how far that lateral goes it is a long ways. Um, and then picture, like, look around you. There's a lot of sticks left to drill, a lot. So it's just not nearly as drilled up, I think, one, as people think, uh, from when you're looking at a map. And two, it's, um, it is an impressive chunk of uh, the, the consolidated piece that Pioneer put together. They knew what they were doing. Um, and that's, that's why there's probably a premium. And I, I do think uh, the Wilson is, is super underestimated in terms of a, a secondary recovery, um, in terms of refrac and probably even just uh, tinkering with completions and existing acreage. And Guyana is, yeah, it is that gift that keeps on giving that is just a, um, I mean, Exxon operates that, by the way. Thanks. All right. Got one question in the back. Yeah, um, first of all, thank you. Well, I guess as the small guy, I yeah. guess I'll say something. Yeah. No, I think uh, what you guys are doing is great. I think very much Nickel Rhodes Origins was, you know, start with uh, a single basket of acreage and then conceive of one unit and then maybe some permits and then go from there. And next thing you know, you've got 10, you know, and, and you've got a drilling program and you've got an equity partner. And so what you guys are, are conceiving of is very important. And I like to comment about how we need to keep filling the funnel. People keep forgetting. We got 13 million of barrels a day of production in this country, but people forget like the decline rate. <laughs> uh, and so we got to keep filling the funnel. And so, um, you know, we found something unique where we were positioned within the DJ, where we felt like we could live kind of between two things that were very healthy and existed. We have these large companies <laughs> that operate on a large scale um, and look for big giant chunks of acreage. And then we had this very healthy kind of uh, inventory of, of buyers and sellers in uh, small positions or smaller positions of acres and minerals and and we've kind of said well but nobody does this and does the operating right so we took a group of people that we had been seasoned through larger operators and said hey well, let's organically put these things together let's elbow our way in 
and then let's actually go do this and show everybody that we can compete on a small scale. And so I think in, in a lot of ways we we were able to prove that where people thought we couldn't get permits, we could. Where people thought we couldn't execute, we we could drill well for a million dollars cheaper. And so. Um, what you guys are doing is great, and I, I think the strength in what you guys are doing is probably in teaming up and finding uh, ways to work together and have, uh, mul you know, multiply that impact amongst what you guys are doing. And to some degree, yeah, find those operating partners, maybe the smaller ones and, you know, where there's opportunity to maybe uh, band together and get something accomplished. Yeah, I mean, I, I love the small operators because they tend to be my clients and I work with them and I grew up around it. Um, I've worked with True before. Obviously, I've worked with Andrew. Um, I'm about to work with Vondere. I'm sure he's going to execute on that anytime. Um, but I mean, seriously, the, the small operators are, uh, there's something that pre-COVID, uh, you had a lot of big private equity firms that would have told you, hey, I mean, I, I literally was at conferences hearing, you know, president, you know, heads of big private equity firms telling you that the day of the small operator is over. We don't need them anymore. And, you know, what's happened since COVID is the rise of the privates, is the rise of the small operators that have, when you look at all the wells that have been poked, all the holes in the ground, a vast, a huge amount of them have been done for private companies that were quick to, to respond to oil prices. And so there's a lot of nimbleness in being private, but they're quick to drop when oil prices drop as well. And we've seen the rig count decline for privates considerably. Um, but there's huge opportunity. Being private and small, it means you really do need to uh, embrace, like mar understand the markets really well. You need to know your, your region, you need to know your state, you need to know the takeaway capacity, you need to know the, you know, the regulatory. You may not think that the macro and oil you know, matters to you, but it does. Um, and so you need a six-month plan, you need a 12-month plan, you really need a two-year, three-year, and five-year plan. And unfortunately, a lot of small, tiny private operators and service companies don't work that way. They'd do a lot better if they did. Um, and so you, as private small companies, there's a huge amount of opportunity, uh, but you have to be smarter and craftier than your peers. I think there's some ability to consolidate, obviously, acreage packages. I mean, I wanted to buy up every single stripper well in the country in 2020 and be the behemoth of stripper well production. I think there's opportunity to do that on, you know, if you're long oil or you're long this business, um, you should be in this business. So uh, you just have to be far more diligent as a smaller private operator, um, depending on what you're doing. I mean, if you're non-op, that's one thing, but if you're drilling and producing oil, it's a completely different story and your costs are high. Um, so you have to know the market really well. Um, and, you know, everybody says you can't time the market. You kind of need to be able to time, you need to be pretty smart because oil prices are high and if you're paying too much for a rig or paying too much to frack, um, then that matters more for a private company. And so I think uh, a little bit of knowledge goes a really, really long way for, for smaller private companies. But I'm extremely bullish on your business um, and how you are move forward. Um, but you have to play in the game of the big boys and you have to be as smart as them. I mean, not obviously like an Exxon, but you do. You have to know as much as they do and, and be executing on business. Uh, uh, just similarly as they do. Um, just to, to, to wrap up quickly, I mean, um, I think y'all recognize that uh, the, the, the conference and the expo today was, was really good and lots of very interesting and good, uh, you know, prospects and and uh, plans of action. The exploration dollars have gone away for big companies or small co small companies, I and mean, there's not as much. Uh, just capital going into, you know, from individuals, from funds to cap, you know, to pockets of capital, uh, and you can blame the, you know, the world-changing U.S. shale revolution for that. It changed a bunch of, you know, people in, in on Wall Street with Patagonia vests, you know, 
that it's all just a manufacturing and there's this many locations and they have this type curve and it produces this much oil and that's my calculation. Uh, a lot of a lot fewer uh, you know geologic you know finds. So I think that's kind of changed the the capital side of the game quite a bit. But uh, I, I uh, being here uh, so in in Houston back in uh, sometime in 2009. Uh, I was visiting with DJ Resources, Dave Lehman and, and his company. They were in Houston at that time. Uh, and uh, they, uh, uh, they, they told me they had a private equity sponsor that, you know, 2008 happened and, and uh, all the big, the great financial crisis happened and their pri uh, pr private equity sponsor at the time kind of told them, hey, all you got is acreage, you don't have any production. Uh, we don't like you guys anymore, we're cutting ties. And, and they cut ties and, you know, uh, DJ Resources kept their, kept their acreage. Uh, and their, their capital partner went, went separate ways. And then about three months later, the EOG Jakewell hit. And then, you know, DJ Resources had 100,000 acres all surrounding that. Uh, so I think there's a lot of, you know, there, there's still, there's still uh, hopes of joy out there. Do you see any other questions, Chris? Any other questions? I got a pillar in front of me. Well, thank you. Three things, Fundera Nickel Road, Tier 1 acreage. <laughs> <laughs> thank you, Tricia. And uh, thank you, everyone, for coming. Honored to be up here with you guys. And yeah, see you all at the happy hour. Thank, Thank you. you. Thank you.